You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, Eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. The year is 1964. And uh, what, are you expecting me to talk about this or something? No, Miss Nicholson. I expect you to podcast with mid-rolls. The movie? Goldfinger. everyone and welcome to unspooled i'm amy nicholson and i'm paul Shear, and this is the show where we are trying to find the 100 best movies of all time and when we do we are sending them to outer space and right now amy we are celebrating an icon uh, a figure that has been in our cinemas for over 60 years i'm talking about the one the only 007 james bond we are finally doing a james bond film and we've picked Goldfinger. And I'm excited to talk about this movie because I think it might be the movie that figured out the perfect recipe for James Bond. It really does have every element perfectly metered out in a way that makes Bond feel refreshing. And I would say that it's even reflected in its runtime. <laughs> well, I want to get into just Sean Connery as James Bond. Uh, as, as a man who, if he came into my house with a golden gun, I'd be like, I will make you a martini, sir, whatever you want. I think he might be my favorite Bond. Well, talk about favorites. This might be my favorite villain in the Bond franchise, but I don't think many people know that it was actually played by two different people. And of course, there is no way we are getting out of this episode without talking about the amazing Honor Blackman as Pussy Galore, a woman who could do her own judo and a woman who really could speak her mind. Did she like later yelled at Sean Connery for being a, a tax cheat who didn't pay taxes in England and kind of shifted his money abroad? She's like, you are a sir, Sir Connery. You should be paying taxes to the country wow. that made you a sir. Well, I want to actually understand that, how we even got the name Pussy Galore to come out in the cinemas at that point. I mean, a lot <laughs> to break it down. So Amy, let's spool, unspool it. <laughs> The year is 1964, and the times, they are changing. That's right, the Warren Commission concludes that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone in the assassination of JFK. Amy, I know that you have a lot of theories about that. 
The passing of the Civil Rights Act ends segregation in public and bans employment discrimination on the basis of race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. And we've moved past that, and there's been no issues ever since. And uh, many firsts include uh, Bubble Wrap, the Ford Mustang, the Beatles on American TV, the Computer Mouse, Buffalo Wings. Oh, wow. 1964. Here we go. And G.I. Joe's, the top movies of the year that we have done and that we have not done are Dr. Strangelove, Mary Poppins, A Hard Day's Night, and today's film, Goldfinger. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? And what was on the radio in 1964? Goldfinger. It is directed by Guy Hamilton. It is his first time directing a Bond film, and this is the third Bond film. It is written by Richard Maybaum and Paul Dan. It is based on the novel by Ian Fleming. And the story is as follows. Sean Connery's James Bond is roaming the world, interrupting drug smuggler revolutionaries when he winds up in Miami and crosses paths with Auric Goldfinger, played by Gert Froga. Uh, this guy is a bad dude. We know this straight away because... Uh, He A, cheats at cards, and then B, when James Bond sleeps with his secretary, Jill Masterson, played by Shirley Eden, or Goldfinger gets very mad and paints her gold and she dies. Um, What is Goldfinger up to? How can he be stopped? How many women will Bond cross paths with as he tries to figure out what on earth Goldfinger's plan is for Fort Knox? He'll cross paths with two more very famous ones in Bond lore. Uh, Tanya Mallet as Tilly Masterson, the gold girl's sister. And of course... The, the legendary, probably top tier, maybe top number one Bond girl of all time, Honor Blackman as Pussy Galore, the uh, leader of an all-female band of pilots. Take a listen. Stop. Look. He's gunning for trouble. 007. It spells Bond. He's the idol of every woman. Who are you? Bond. James Bond. The envy of every man. The nemesis of the treacherous Mr. Goldfinger. Goldfinger was released in England in 1964. It was actually released here in America the first week of 1965, on January 9th, 1965. And it is part of the British domination of the airwaves. You already talked about the Beatles coming to America. You talked to Hard Day's Night. Beatles are just dominating. The number one song on the charts is the Beatles' I Feel Fine. And I need to ask you, Paul, given that these two imports really blew up at the same time, you know, Bond had existed for a few years, the Beatles had existed for a few years, but this is the moment where both of them come to the States and just explode. Who would you rescue from a laser pointed at their crutch? The Beatles or Bond? Look, who made a bigger indent on our culture, right? That's the question. Who really deserves to be saved? I think at the end of the day, our society is better off for having the Beatles than Bond. Now, it's a very hard line to draw, but I feel like if you had to take one away, even though I love James Bond, I would keep the Beatles. Wow. 
Yeah. You might have some man with a martini knocking on your door to say, how dare you? I need my crutch. Well, you just made me lose my crutch. Here's my, my secret reasoning. Um, even if I did try to kill James Bond, he would get away. So, you know what? I have to save the Beatles because they're not as clever. I mean, they're a little bit clever. If you've seen Hard Day's Night, but they're not as slick as James Bond. I, I feel like James Bond can get himself out of his own laser. Um, by the way, I know we're going to get into it in the episode, but I do want to talk about that scene, the laser scene in this movie. I know it's a very big, um, iconic scene in cinema. Goldfinger has James Bond tied to a table and a laser is slicing down the table. I just want to ask you, what's the plan there? Is the plan that everyone is going to stand by as a man is literally separated in half? Like the mess that that would cause, the trauma that the people surrounding <laughs> that table would have to endure of watching a man sliced open. And maybe it's going to be like a lightsaber because it would cauterize. But it seems to me so, uh, like, come on, Goldfinger. You got to get a whole cleaning crew in there. It doesn't seem smart. It just seems like you're creating a bigger mess for yourself. And for what? You're leaving. You're not even going to watch the slice and dice. You're like, at least if you're going to do that standby and like enjoy your terrible tendencies, he's like, oh yeah, you clean that up. And that makes me just know that Goldfinger's a bad dude. We know it because like you said in the beginning, he's cheating at cards, but I think truly to slice a man in half and not even stay around for the slicing means that you really take no joy and you're a terrible person because a good villain would love to see a James Bond slice, but also... Oof, I feel sorry for that maintenance crew. <laughs> well, do you think it would be better or worse if they had kept with the original torture plan? That instead of a laser, it was going to be a buzzsaw. They were just going to go real I simple know. and effective. Look, the buzzsaw makes more sense. Um, I think the, the laser is more sadistic. They obviously use a kind of a buzzsaw thing in License to Kill, which was the second Timothy Dalton movie, I believe, where they're like racing through or towards a combine. But... uh. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, a buzzsaw is pretty gross, too. I think a buzzsaw, you get more blood on the ceiling. Oh, yeah. <laughs> now, Amy, before we get started, I just want to address how hard it was for us to pick this film, right? Because there was a little bit of debate about, is this the movie that we want to focus on? Should we do Dr. No? Because it starts off the franchise. Should we do From Russia with Love? Because it, in many ways, I think is maybe a better film than Goldfinger, but we came back to Goldfinger as being the most iconic James Bond. And now after we've picked it, I'm so happy that we did because I really do believe this is where James Bond really starts to fly. Like the first two films I love and they're great, but this one has great theme song, great villain, great Bond girls, uh, great gadgets, not so much of a globe-trotting adventure. I mean, there is a little bit, but, you know, it gets to be more and more intense. It seems like now James Bond films are just giant travelogues. I kind of like the simplicity of this movie. And I think in looking at it, you see how James Bond movies can go wrong because this is a very special stew that needs the right ingredients to make it all work. 
And different bonds and different directors maybe pour a little bit more here and a little bit less here. And they can give you a little bit more of an uneven bond. I mean, that's how I feel in watching this. Is like, this is kind of, this is the recipe. Everyone else follows this recipe. And they add their own little spice to it, whether it's the acting, but more importantly, from the directing and writing standpoint, it's like, how much do we want to lean in certain directions? Because I think you can see connections to this movie all the way up into the last uh, Daniel Craig film. It's all there. You're right. There's, I mean, to me, this is the Bond where Bond gets to have a real sense of play and humor. You know, mm-hmm. there's always that twinkle in Connery's eye. Like he's had it from the very, very beginning, like from his very inter- first introduction in Dr. No, which I want to play just because I love having the theory that Bond steals his iconic intro from just actually a Bond girl. I need another thousand. I admire your courage, Miss... Uh... Trench. Sylvia Trench. I admire your luck, Mr... Bond. James Bond. I love that because he's making fun of Sylvia Trench. She's like, Trench, Sylvia Trench. I feel like he's like playing around, you know, at teasing her, nagging her just a little bit and stealing I her I agree. Name. I agree. And I think it's funny when you look at this franchise because these little choices get pulled together. I don't think anyone thought that the martini ordering was going to be the de facto, you know, identification of James Bond. But it becomes such a a part of him that all of a sudden when a new Bond comes in, you know, how do they order a martini? I don't give a damn. Or Heineken weird but uh (laughs) but you know you start to you start to embrace these certain things and here's where he orders his martini for the first time i don't suppose it'll be all fun and games miley can i do something for you mr bond uh just a drink a martini shaken not stirred and actually, there's a, a really funny interview with Ian Fleming that comes out right around the time that this movie comes out. And Ian Fleming explains that when he goes to a bar, he really likes to order a high life because he just thinks high life is the most charming name. So Ian Fleming, British guy, sidling up to bars and saying, high life, Miller high life. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, I would love, and how different would the world be if James Bond drank Miller High Life. <laughs> like, that was it. Uh, the, the most refined gentleman always just asking for, and they were like, ah, we don't really have that. Do you have Pabst? No, we don't have Pabst either. Um, Rolling Rock. No, we don't have any of that. Um, James Bond, though, is part of that class of people who, like, made vermouth uncool. And I think vermouth in a martini is marvelous, perhaps even necessary. I do agree with that. And I don't know why. Why do you think... He took out vermouth. I don't know. I love vermouth. Right now, when I drink a martini, I order a 50-50 where it's like half vermouth, half gin. Because okay. A, it's delicious. And E, I don't get totally wasted after one martini. You're doing martini. gin martinis? Yeah. Oof. I do. <laughs> Oof. We should go to Moose and Frank's and order martinis and then heckle each other's martinis. I, I would love to do that. I mean, my martini is uh, is a little suspect. I do ask for a splash of Tabasco in it. You do? Yeah, I got that from Nick Kroll. He used to do that. And I'm like, this is a delicious little addition to it. Okay, I'll I'll confess. My weirdest martini that I have stopped ordering, but I really loved for a long time, uh-huh. is an extra dirty martini made with citrus vodka. 
Ooh. It's wonderful. It's, I mean, this is the drink of my, like, you know, I just learned to drink martinis in my, like, 23. I was like, I'm going to, I decided to teach myself to like martinis. Martinis are a great drink when made really well. And I think they taste like nothing, but they knock you out. Like, I had a martini last week and I was like, oh, fuck. I'm drunk now. Like it like it it sneaks up on you in a big way. So I do have a lot more respect for James Bond that it can kick those back and still fight off a lot of bad dudes. Uh and ladies. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, Eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. I do want to point out one thing, which I think is the biggest difference in Goldfinger versus the first two Bond films, and that is uh, Terrence Young. Terrence Young directed the first two Bond movies. And from everything that I've learned about Bond, he created Bond in his image. Like, he wanted Bond to be like Terrence Young. And if you read a little bit about Terrence Young, you understand there's something there. But when Guy Hamilton comes in, I think he sees what you see, which is that little glimmer in Sean Connery's eye, and he starts to build out the character. And I really do believe that Guy Hamilton creates the character that can last for 60 years. I don't know if Terrence Young would have created a character that has this much room. And I say that because we have to, we have to like enjoy this character and the character changes actors and we have to be able to flow with the character. So the character has to be as iconic as the actor can be as well. And I think what happens here is the character starts to come to life a little bit more. There starts to be these things that we can hang our hat on. I know we're making fun of the martini ordering and the name, but these are the things so we could replace the actor, but the character stays the same without anyone really freaking out about it. And I think that this is like a really a fascinating thing that he adds to this. And I think it's a small thing, but I do think that character needs to be carved out a little bit more so we can we could have some there there for, you know, whatever, 57 more years. Yeah, you're, I think you're exactly right. I mean, one of Hamilton's big notes and a touch of, of Baxter on Hamilton 
This is a guy who was like, you know, the assistant director on African Queen. He'd been around kind of like cheeky Bogarty stars. He was he he had a sense of like what made an actor mythic. But he had been offered directing Dr. No and turned it down and then saw what Dr. No turned out to be. And was like, oh, that was pretty cool. Maybe I should have been a part of the Bond movies. So when they offered him this third movie, he was like, yes, but my note is this James Bond guy is feeling kind of like a Superman. You know, he just shows up, he can do anything, he makes it all work. And what you see, I think, in Goldfinger is that if it was your first introduction to Bond, you'd be like, wow, he's really charming. He's great with women. He's not that great as a spy. Like, he gets shot, he gets hit on the head, he's crashed his cars, he's like kidnapped or captured time and time again. Even at the end, he's like, can I defuse this bomb? No. He actually can't. Like, he's not that great at a lot of the technical stuff. He's not like a super amazing, awesome spy who wins every fight, who always succeeds, who never gets caught off guard. And it's his failures that I think do some really important stuff. They make him kind of lovable, you know, like, oh, I got knocked on the head with the champagne right when he was dissing the Beatles. No. And it, it makes him a little bit more human. This like guy who yes. is superhuman in so many ways. And also... Because he keeps getting bested or screwing up and not being perfect, you know, trying to defuse a bomb, even though he can't do it. I think it leaves room for the villains to pop. You know, like, yes. I think that Goldfinger and Oddjob become such an amazing duo. And that was really part of Hamilton's idea, too. He's like, I'm going to concentrate on the villains. That's where the suspense is going to come here. The villains are going to be great. I totally agree. I think when you think about villains in James Bond lore, people might say like, oh, Blofeld's the best villain. Fuck that. Blofeld is like an archetype. He's a head. He doesn't feel to me like a villain. Like Goldfinger is a villain and they really go head to head. And Goldfinger is as smart, if not smarter than James Bond. Like he's constantly besting him. And I feel like that rivalry is something that we don't often get in a James Bond film. It's a grounded villain that truly acts the way that a bad guy should. Like, yes, he, you know, walks it back and maybe makes a few mistakes. But in that one moment when he's on the table and he's about to get lasered in half and he's like, do you expect me to talk? He's like, no, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. I think you've made your point, Goldfinger. Thank you for the demonstration. Choose your next witticism carefully, Mr. Bond. It may be your last. The purpose of our two previous encounters is now very clear to me. I do not intend to be distracted by another. Good night, Mr. Bond. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond. I expect you to die. There is nothing you can talk to me about that I don't already know. I love that moment because... No, he's going to kill the guy who's chasing him. Like, there's just a simplicity to him. And and you're introduced to him in the best way. It's like, oh, this guy, I know who he is. He's cheating at cards while on vacation in Miami. He's not playing a high-stakes poker game. He's not in a fancy casino. He's playing this schlub in a Miami hotel for points. It's like you get how fragile his ego is. And that is... Truly, to me, one of the best villain introductions in James Bond's history, because it's simple. I get it. I'm right there. Yeah, there's something about him that feels both like a terrifying CEO, 
Like he's yeah. used to getting what he wants. He's used to snapping his fingers and people make it happen. He's used to bossing people around. That confidence in his voice, I expect you to die. He expects what he wants to happen. And yet he seems like a, a kid you hated in elementary school. You know, though he's got to right. cheat at golf. He's got to cheat at cards. I love the way that he's dressed. I love that he always has to wear a little bit of yellow. Like there's a touch of Batman villain in his costuming because it's just a little bit goofy. He's always got to wear yellow. He always has to wear yellow. Everyone around him has to be blonde for the most part. He seems both theatrical and competent. You know, and in the book, like his whole plan is he's actually going to try to steal all the gold and get all of the gold out of Fort Knox. I think one of the really smart things they did to the script is like, no, that's impossible. It will take too long. We'll have Bond tell you that that's impossible. He's going to be smarter about it. He's going to be tactical and just ruin all the gold so that his becomes more valuable. Which, by the way, congratulations. If the plan worked, this would have been in the year that the gold would be safe again. Oh, really? Yep. 2022. We'd be sitting on that gold getting rich now. (laughs) And you know what's so wild is I did not realize until I was prepping for this podcast that in all the times I've watched this film, that Gert, who I just see as like great guy commanding the stage, walking around, being really funny, that he is not actually delivering any of those lines because when he showed up on set, his accent was so strong that nobody could understand it. The very first scene that I shot on the balcony with Gert. And Gert had to start the scene, and he said, Operation once was lanced on I thought, oh my God, <laughs> what was that? But his mouth stopped. So all of his lines are lip synced, which I just find amazing. There's only one moment in the film where you hear his real voice and it's a moment where he's not on screen. It's okay. You know, when like he's uh, explaining for some reason to all of the minions, all of the gangsters that he's about to kill what his plan is. And then he kills him. But uh, Bond is like poking his head up from inside the model of Fort Knox. Only in there, when when Gert is off screen, you hear his real voice come on. You can hear the switch right here. You're wasting my time, Goldfinger. The depository is impregnable. Look. The joint is bombproof, electrified, lousy with machine Bear guns. with me, TBS. please. Fort Knox is a bank, like any other. Larger, better protected, perhaps, but nonetheless, a bank. It can be. I think the expression is blown. My plan is foolproof, gentlemen. I call it Operation Grand Slam. Oh, wow. You see, I've been dying to find that line or those moments because... I've known this for a very long time. And the dubbing is perfect. perfect. It really is perfect. And you, I've watched the lips. It's a great performance. And I will say that, you know, Gert does an amazing job at carrying Goldfinger. Like he is, the body is doing a lot. Like, he, you know, he is a strong actor. And by the way, there was a rumor for a long time that like uh, Gert Frobe did the part in a very uh, humorless way. But no, he was a comedic performer. You know, he he was a jovial guy. It was just an accent issue. But the balance between two different performers to create an iconic Bond villain really blows my mind. And to think about that, again, from a directing standpoint, to go, all right, I got this movie, but how do I match you know, how do I match these two things and to do it so perfectly and not make it feel weird or out of place? Because this movie could have just really 
bombed the entire Bond franchise if yeah. this wasn't perfect. I can't think of a movie I've seen where the dubbing was this good, where you didn't even know. And let's give it up. Michael Collins is the actor who did uh, Gert's voice. And Michael Collins is an English actor. So Michael Collins is doing a German voice as an English actor dubbing a man with a thick accent. I love it. I love it's it's a it's a Bond villain plan in the sense of dubbing. I agree. And also one tiny thing about Gert that should be mentioned is when this movie came out, it was temporarily banned in Israel because Gert had been a Nazi. He was, you know, kind of forced to join the Nazi party when he was a teenager and then he was like drafted. And um what happened is like he, yeah, this story came out and then a, a Jewish family, actually, the family, um, their name is the Blumenthal's came forward and they're like, yeah, he was a member, he was drafted. But when the Nazis came, he saved our lives. And that like he was, they kind of tried to explain that like he was born in Germany. This was the life he was sort of born into. But when things got bad, he did his best to try to protect them. And he did save them from the Nazis. He saved like a mother and her son. And so that was, wow. a, yeah, very complicated complicated, complicated story that popped up right when this movie came out that almost derailed it in Israel. And if we're talking about villains, we need to talk about Oddjob. And I, I want to talk about Oddjob because is he a villain or is he just doing his job? I mean, he is, he doesn't have an evil plan. He seems to be somewhat indebted to Goldfinger as everyone seems to be indebted to Goldfinger. Goldfinger seems to really hold people, uh, around maybe just by money. Like there is something about it, but I don't feel like Oddjob is doing it for the money. I feel like if we went for a backstory on Oddjob, I feel like there was some sort of like a blood oath that they've made. Like he feels, he feels like he's in it really out of like a servitude to Goldfinger. I don't know. I mean, what do you, what do you think about Oddjob? Is he a bad guy? Is he just a henchman? What, what do you think their relationship is? Because he can't speak. He's a mute. I know. Part of why I groaned a second ago when I was like, everything Goldfinger has around him is golden. It's because in the book, and I hate that I am saying this out loud, uh, in the book, Ian Fleming wrote Oddjob and most of Goldfinger's minions to be Asian because he was making a slur about yellow. Oh. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Ooh, wow. I did That's... not know that. Oh, wow. Yeah. Isn't that... Uh, yeah. Horrible? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Really awful. Yeah. Really awful. Really horrible. Wow. Really horrible. If, yeah. That was his idea of a joke. Like, oh, it'll be so funny. Yikes. He loves, he loves that color. Wow. Um, but I really just adore Harold Sakata's performance in this, you know, like, yeah, he's from Hawaii. And I think he carries so much energy on the screen. Like he just, you, you can't take your eyes off Ajab when he's there. Like he's fascinating to look at. And sometimes Connery thought it went too far. Like Connery was like, when he crushes the golf ball, that is ridiculous. When he crushes that golf ball with his bare yeah. hands just to snarl. But that's what I like about this movie is Hamilton finding those ways to add that lightness to it. You know, like that Hamilton's big note for everybody was like, don't worry about being realistic. Be creative, be creative, be creative. And that tone, you know, Ajab just carries that tone. And I think like Harold Sakata, he did so much stuff around the time that this movie came out to kind of promote it and like promote being this Ajab character. Like, did you ever see that clip? where Johnny Carson is starting his show and Harold Sakata just walks in and, as character and destroys his entire set. You're about to hear a lot of crashing. Just picture 
The desk gets pounded into smithereens. Uh, the whole back wall gets shattered. He just destroys this set and then walks off. You just joined us. We got Bob Newhart with us tonight. Mr. Billy DeWolf, you missed some magic. We- <laughs> My God, that is amazing. <laughs> yeah. And then he got really famous because he was then doing like odd job in Vicks commercials, just kind of leaning on the fact that every so often he would cough. No matter how strong a man is, a cough can still get the upper hand. <laughs> but fortunately, there's Vicks Formula 44, the extra strength cough mixture. Effective as codeine, but not narcotic. <laughs> and he's just, I just think he's like such a fun guy. Like he is, you know, he was a wrestler. Like he grew up working on, did you know this about him? By the way, this is fascinating. He grew up working on like sugar and pineapple plantations in Hawaii. And mm-hmm. he was a very, very small kid. Like when he was 18, he was five foot eight and he weighed 113 pounds. That's kind of like Kate Moss proportions. Wow. Uh, That's how small he was. So when he was 18, he was like, I'm just too skinny. I can't do this. So he started lifting weights. And then he won Mr. Hawaii Physique. Then he won a silver at the Olympics for wrestling. And then by the time he's in Bond, he has grown to 5'10 and he's 284 pounds. Like he more than doubled his weight when he was 18 to be just this physical character who then like wrestled for a really long time under the name Tosh Togo. Like he took the name Togo from a Japanese admiral. Well, I love his physicality, and I think the way that he walks, the way he carries himself, like you want this in a henchman because oftentimes James Bond isn't coming to blows with the main villain, right? The henchman does a lot of the work, and whether that is a character like uh, Jaws, who has these metal teeth that you see in Moonraker, and uh, he comes back again, uh, there are these insurmountable strongmen that Bond has to fight. And I think that this sets the tone for the future of these characters. It becomes this one-two punch. Who's the villain? Who's the sidekick? And, you know, this sidekick is, I think, one of the most effective ones because when he is throwing James Bond around at the end in Fort Knox, like a rag doll, you buy it. It doesn't feel like he feels like he has the strength right there. Like Dave Bautista does a great job of that in the the later James Bonds with Daniel Craig. But you you need that kind of physicality because Bond isn't a big guy. And I think it's it's really fun when you see that in a a movie like even John Wick, where, you know, John Wick goes against uh, Boban Marjanovic, you know, which is an NBA basketball player. But it's like just the (laughs) different sizes of these guys become, it's just harder for our main character to kind of go against them because literally his punches don't work. And to make it all the more uh, evil, like Oddjob isn't just a strong man who can just beat you or take a punch. He has this hat, the hat that, you know, he throws like a, a, like a razor Frisbee and it can cut the head off of statues. It was actually, this hat is rated the ninth most iconic villain weapon of all time in the history of cinema, which I think is uh, a worthy place to be. I mean, it is a a great, a great gimmick. Now, the Mythbusters did try to create a hat like that. 
they were not able to break a uh, a statue's head off with it, so busted. But uh, maybe they're just too scrawny. Maybe, maybe. Uh, <laughs> but I love what you're saying about the size differential because you you've heard me. I've like grown about this too many times, and I think like our heroes in action movies have gotten too big just in general, across the board, unless they're yeah. playing like a superhero. And when you see James Bond, this James Bond come out, and he, I looked it up, he's like, at this moment, Sean Connery, fairly tall, six feet tall and 168 pounds. He's not like a muscle-bound guy. He's not living on egg whites to be this character. He looks like a human being. Yes. And that, James Bond with his shirt off. vital. Yeah. Yes, is a, is, I love that believable body. I love that Burt Reynolds 70s, I'm in shape, but I'm not like Gerard Butler in 300. And I think yeah. that that is... He's a jogger. He looks like a jogger. Yeah. And, you know, and he's still, you know, eating, going to town, having some drinks. Uh, but, you know, that I think makes these fights a little bit more fun. They're a little sloppier. Like I noticed even in the first scene, we talk about the opening of this film where, you know, again... Iconic opening, Bond comes out of the water, he goes in and he's blowing up this, uh, you know, drug dealer's, it, you know, factory, uh, reveals himself in a tuxedo. Everything is kind of perfect there. Very much uh, True Lies does an homage to this opening uh, in their oh, opening. We should, I love True Lies. We should True do Lies that. is great. But it's, you're right. It's the perfect amount of like kind of kicked up, you know, like black right. suit, white tux. I've thought to have my, my red carnation. I love it all. But- Immediately after that, he's attacked. Bond is attacked. And it's a sloppy ass fight, right? I like sloppy fights. I think that we've gotten so used to everyone knows martial arts and everyone is fully going at it. And I think this is a time where fights look a little bit more like an upgraded cowboy movie. You know, there are these wild swings and, you know, both characters are getting punched. Now we live in a world of Fast and Furious where it's like, well, this character can't get punched by this character and this person can never lose a fight and this person can't fall down. But I do think everything you talked about in regards to James Bond not being a great spy makes you connect to him a little bit more. Like he's not untouchable. He's not infallible. He's not unbeatable. He gets lucky. Um, yeah. And he and stands that, out because of his cool. Like, it's yes. his personality that makes him special. Like, he stands out in that opening scene, you know, because he walks into that bar finally where Bonita is dancing. Huge explosion. And he's the guy who doesn't flinch. You know, he's the guy who just coolly keeps walking up to the bar. And, like, that's his personality. Like, that's his that's his strength. Well, that and the fact that he can wear, like, tiny, short, short terry cloth rompers and look so tough and awesome and manly. I mean, have you ever worn shorts that short? No, I mean, uh, I like the idea of them, but it really is. I mean, terry cloth shorts is a look. As a matter of fact, I sent my son to school in terry cloth shorts today because it was pajama day. So uh, I, I really took him in as he got out of the car. I was like, good for you. Good for you feeling that comfortable and confident to wear your little, your little terry cloth shorts in there. And I didn't even know how he got them, but... Thank God for Target. Uh, you know, <laughs> talking about like sex appeal and and body types, we have to talk about these women in this movie. Like there is something really interesting about the relationships of Bond 
and these women. The first one that we meet, uh, the one who is painted in gold, the one that is working for uh, Goldfinger and helping him cheat in the card game. This first moment when Bond breaks up like the, the card grift that Goldfinger's doing, they have this immediate connection and they kiss pretty much within two minutes of meeting. We watch it happen in real time. And I was watching that and I'm like, wow, this is interesting because he's not forcing himself on her. And I feel like sometimes Bond can just like grab a woman and be like, you're going to kiss me now. And you, you always wanted it. I just made it happen. It does feel like she is falling under his spell a little bit. I wanted to see what your perspective was because I think it's a different thing. And I think again, when Bond has an actual connection with somebody, I like those sex scenes a little bit more. I like those relationships a little bit more. It feels like they both want it. Whereas sometimes I've seen Bond movies where it feels like he's like, like I said, he's like, I'm going to give it to you and you're going to like it. And maybe you won't like yeah. it to begin with, but eventually you will. But here it does feel like... But he gets like, to do that in this movie too. But Yes. Uh, yeah. The, but yeah, that's how I think of like the Roger Moore Bonds. Just like, oh, blah, blah, you're my blah, 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 blah. But, yeah. but, but if Sean Connery... I will say this as a woman. Is Sean Connery as Bond walked into any room? I don't know if any of my friends and I could resist this twinkle. Like a guy who so confidently kind of moves into your, he moves into her physical space very clearly. You know, he like kind of is leaning on top of her, making Mm -hmm. her lean back, but doing it with such humor and confidence like that, his confidence, I think, is so unbelievably sexy. And the lightness in his confidence. He's not like, I'm a tough guy and I'm confident about it. He's he's so playful. Like yeah. when I think about his expression, when I think about them like in that bedroom scene, you know, he's like, he, you know, he says he's gonna take her to dinner in the best place in town. And then the next thing that you see is like Guy Hamilton cutting to a completely uneaten salmon dinner. They don't, they are not there to eat. And Penny to them kissing. He is just so bemused. snuggling too. Yeah, snuggling. Like, He's he is so he is enjoying her. Do you know what I mean? Right. It is an it is a mutual enjoyment. Well, and I think that's maybe what I'm getting at. It's the difference between like two people enjoying a one night stand versus like I'm conquering you. And I think that Connery in the early bonds has that or especially here has this charming thing where, you know, it, it it does feel like, oh, maybe, maybe this can happen. Maybe this can, we can connect here on this. And I I feel like he really cares about this woman, the, the gold, the gold woman. Yeah. He looks and, at women the way like Anthony Bourdain looks at a meal, you know? Yes. You feel yeah. honored to be that meal. And I do think in many respects that is carrying through his want to take down Goldfinger, right? Goldfinger killed this woman and uh, he truly, I think is carrying a little bit of that weight where again, Bond girls in later films can feel incredibly disposable. And yes, he moves on almost to two other people right after her. But I do feel like there's a gravitas, there's an emotional connection to it a little bit. And I think he's able to play that. I think that that's what Sean Connery really brings to this role. And 
I love On Her Majesty's Secret Service. And I think that there's a really great underlying sense of falling in love in that movie. I think that movie gets uh, like underappreciated. I think there's a lot of cool things in it, but also following, you know, following Sean Connery is a hard act. And I don't think that George Lazenby has that same thing, right? And Roger Moore has that glimmer, but it's a little bit too, it's it's too bright. It's like the TV version of that glimmer. Although I really like Roger Moore and that was my first James Bond. Uh, I, I find his glint too hostile. I don't know, predatory. Like it's like- it's, I understand what you're saying. A hun- yeah. I, I 100%. And I, that's the one that I grew up on and I very rarely revisit those uh, James Bond movies. I, there's some ones that I that I like, uh, The Spy Who Loved Me in particular. Um, but- you know, the ones like Octopussy are like, oh, oof. Like, it just feels like a, it, yeah. it it feels creepy. It just feels a little creepy. But yeah, like to your point, I mean, in a way we have a very similar setup to what we've seen in some of the, you know, Craig Bonds. Like, I cared about a woman. She died. I will avenge this. But it's that plot point done with a lighter hand. Like, I mean, we know that this is in here because like we have that scene where he's with M and M is like, if you're going after Goldfinger, it cannot be personal because he kind of suspects, like, is is this about Jill? This isn't a personal vendetta, 007. It's an assignment like any other. But if you can't treat it as such coldly and objectively, 008 can replace him. But yeah, it, it's not done with that weight of tragedy, which I appreciate. I really appreciate the lightness of that blonde. And I think that in a way... Some of the some of the tragedy in this movie being done so lightly makes it hit harder. Like mm-hmm. I really get upset by like the part by the scene with Tilly where he meets Jill, her younger sister. She's going after Goldfinger too. You know, she's sort of she's introduced as kind of like, I will have nothing to do with you. I'm kind of like curt and busy. I have stuff to do. Look at them. A double blowout. I've never seen one of these before. How could new tires? A defect of some kind, most likely. Anyway, I'm so glad it's one of the car and not you. You don't look like the sort of girl who should be ditched. Never mind that. Please take me to the nearest garage. Certainly. By the way, my name is Bond. Um, as quickly as possible. And, you know, hiding from him that she is, you know, really after Goldfinger and hiding it from us, too. I think that's so kind of playful is we don't know if when she like cuts off his car and then like starts shooting guns from down this hillside, that great shot where it's like he's looking at Goldfinger and then the camera pulls back and sees Tilly looking at him. And you don't know if she's aiming at Bond or Goldfinger. You don't know who she's working for. But this character seems to have so much life and personality. And then when she gets killed almost immediately, you feel that loss. It's like, we didn't even get a chance to know her, but it doesn't feel like she was disposable. It feels like, I wish we could have known her. You know, you feel like she was brave and a bad shot. And I wish that she was alive. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. 
like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course, and Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Yeah, throughout this entire film, these these three women that are the quote-unquote Bond girls are incredibly smart, capable people who at points best Bond and at other points are his equal. Like, he doesn't look down on any one of them. Even, uh, you know, with the secretary, like, she feels like she has some power over her decisions here. Like, she's not... You know, she feels empowered, like, yeah, fuck this guy. Fuck Goldfinger. I don't care. Like, and I and I love that energy of it. She's not just swayed like goo goo gaga, like, oh my gosh, this guy came in in his terry cloth shorts and I'm just going bananas. Like, I feel like she's got a, a backbone. And again, James Bond movies, I think, does this depending on the film in different ways. Like, it sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Uh, but, you know, as much as we say this movie has a perfect villain... I think you could argue that it probably has one of the most perfect Bond girls in Pussy Galore. Not only is she one of the oldest Bond girls, um, yeah, she's, she's definitely... 37, I think, when Honor Blackman does this movie. And I like the two of them. I like how she pulls his legs out from underneath him and has a conscience. She also, like Ajab, is doing this bigger plan and she saves the day. I mean, Pussy Galore saves the day. This plan only works because Pussy Galore decides to screw over Goldfinger. And there's something really interesting about the relationship with Goldfinger and these people that are indebted to him. Is he treating them badly? You know, there's a there's a thing in the book uh, where Pussy Galore is gay. And Honor Blackman talked about thinking her character was gay as well. And what she said was, you know, I realized that maybe she'd been with Goldfinger so long that she just developed a hatred for men and Bond kind of rekindles that. Like she's just wants to be out of his purview so that like she shuts that part of herself down. Yeah, there's a line in the book where after like Bond seduces her, he says, they told me you only liked women. And she says... I never met a man before. There's a lot of that, oh, like, okay, so, you know, yeah. there's a lot of that 60s psychology of like, the, actually, they, there's there's actually two lesbians in the book, the way that they're written. Like in the book, it's like more clear that Tilly is also a lesbian and that's why she doesn't want anything to do with Bond. And you get to see Ian Fleming, you know, really applying his like, his his brilliant deductive powers to explaining why women are lesbians. Do you want to hear this? It's a little oh, bit much. Oh, of course. Sure. Okay. So in the book, uh, Ian Fleming writes, 
Tilly Masterson was one of those girls whose hormones had got mixed up. As a result of 50 years of emancipation, feminine qualities were dying out or being transferred to the males. The result was a herd of unhappy sexual misfits, barren and full of frustrations. The women wanting to dominate, the men to be nannied. He was sorry for them, but he had no time for them. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I, I actually think that Hamilton did a fairly good job taking that and adapting it to something better. Like Hamilton, I think, looked at a lot of what was in this book and like him and his screenwriters were like, we're not going to do that. We're not going to do that. We're not going to have a scene where Goldfinger throws Oddjob a cat and says that he can eat it for dinner. And Oddjob is very happy to eat a cat. Oh boy, that man. And I've read a lot of these Ian Fleming books and I guess maybe I was younger and it didn't really trigger me that way, but wow, rough stuff, rough Rough stuff. stuff, rough stuff. He leaves one vestigial note of that. You know, there's like one female character who gets a bit of the Ian Fleming treatment, and that's Dink. You know, Dink is Dink is the cute right. blonde at the pool. Say hello to Dink. Hi, Dink. Dink, say goodbye to Felix. Mm-hmm. Uh, man talk. And by the way, little thing about Margaret Nolan, who played Dink. She's actually the uh, model who's painted gold in the introduction. She's the one doing like the gold dance. That's Dink in the credits. It's also Dink in the advertisements. And, you know, I... We get five seconds with Dink, but I kind of enjoy Dink. I mean, how can you not enjoy a person named Dink? I love Dink. (laughs) You got to love Dink as much as I think you got to love the gadgets in this movie, too. Because, again, we're talking about a perfect alchemy in this movie. And we get to see Q Branch. Love Q. Great. And I love where these gadgets start. And I think that James Bond got so big at a certain point that what people really responded to in the Daniel Craig James Bond films is the pairing it down, pairing it back. Let's bring it back to reality because the gadgets are cool. The Aston Martin is great. You know, there are so many little fun things in that Aston Martin that, again, seem grounded enough, right? Yeah, like the like the smoke coming out. I actually heard that one of the things they wanted to do was have nails come out instead of smoke, but then they thought maybe that's too realistic and other people will just do that and use nails coming out of their car all the time. Let's do smoke. It seems more complicated. Like the only way they could actually get the smoke to work was they hid a prop guy in the trunk of the Aston Martin holding a smoke canister and he like had to hold it out the held it out a hole in the trunk and like let the smoke blow everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love this Aston Martin. Aston Martin didn't want their car to be in there at first. And then they realized, oh my gosh, this is the best tie-in we could possibly ever have. I mean- What about the Ben-Hur callback? Wait, I missed it. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. Where like the the spinning knives come out of his car and like ruin Tilly's tires. Oh, yes. I didn't even realize that that was a Ben-Hur callback. <laughs> Look at that. Uh, I love the car. I love the microchips. I love Q. Uh, and- I think, well, But let me ask you this, though. How do you feel about these intro scenes where Q kind of walks you through everything and you're like, well, then, I guess I know at some point somebody is getting ejected from a car. Do you like that kind of countdown feeling of like, well, if Q shows you an, an ejector seat, you know somebody's getting ejected? Or would you rather not know the car had an ejector seat and been surprised? I think that these movies are really interesting and fun because it is foreshadowing. I mean, it, it's all about foreshadowing. You know, there's a scene earlier on in Goldfinger where Bond is captured. He's on a private jet. They're headed to the United States. And, you know, Honor Blackman has her gun on Bond. 
He's like, well, you wouldn't shoot me because the bullet would go through me. It would go out the plane fuselage. It would create this moment where the plane would go down. He basically tells you the end of the movie, but you forget about it. It's left there. And I do believe that at this point, as you're learning about the gadgets, you don't know how they're going to come into play and you wonder when they will. And, uh, I think that you feel like James Bond in those moments. Like, oh my gosh, he's captured. And you're not thinking about the ejector seat until I think Bond remembers it, right? So I think you're on the same page. I think it's like stored away and then it comes back into your memory. I think it's a nice seeding of how things will actually play out without it feeling like it's telegraphing. I think there's a difference between foreshadowing and telegraphing. And I think this movie walks a pretty good line of it. Honestly, I agree. I do agree. I think it's just playful enough that you are kind of running alongside Bond. Yeah. And I think that it's also not the only time he gets captured or has to use his wits. It's one of like 15 times. So yeah, they foreshadow like one of the 15 times, but there's so many other great little moments that it all kind of blends together too. You know, so it's not like just only one, you know, we're building to this moment. We're building to this moment. You forget all about the plane until the very end when Goldfinger makes his, like, almost his uh, horror movie, I'm not dead, you know, and you're like, oh, shit, and we've already known it, so you actually feel smart, so you're not actually questioning can a man be sucked out of a plane because we've already been told that he could. And I think that that's why we need to hear these villains' plans all the time because... We need to understand the logic of it so we can actually enjoy the action of it. And I think that that's something that I get really frustrated with when I see a film like, not to rag on this movie, but like Transformers or something where I'm like, what am I watching? What is actually happening? It's just like battles and there's no consequences. I remember Steven Spielberg talking about like how he choreographs fight scenes. And it's like, you need to see like the punch land and we got to go, you know, we, we need to understand the choreography of it and and the Bond finales, if you understand what the playground is, I think you can actually enjoy everything in it without going, wait, what is that? Why is there a tram there? And, And what is that plane? Like you have to see it because then it allows you to enjoy it. Now that brings me to my biggest question, which is why was Goldfinger telling all those guys his plan if he was just gonna kill him? I have absolutely no idea. Like, was he just, was he gathered? Okay, so he gathers them there and his intention is just to kill them all along, but he wants to tell them a story first? Yes, and then also the guy who decides he's going to leave, they have to drive that far off property? To kill him? (laughs) To kill him and then crush the car with the gold inside, but then I guess it's all just to get the gold back? But couldn't Oddjob just have taken the gold out of the trunk? And then and then get the car. <laughs> There's a couple of things here that look for as smart as Goldfinger is, you know, he's maybe he just has to kill time. He's a guy who's like, well, the plan doesn't happen until tomorrow. I need to entertain myself. Let me uh, create this thing because he's also paying off people at this local junkyard. A lot, a lot, a lot is going on here for simply killing these men that you could have killed immediately. They were all in there playing pool. Just close, <laughs> close the fireplace. Let him go. That's it. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. But I do really love that sequence where they crush the car. And the movie just sort oh, of yeah. stops to really watch this car get crushed. Yeah. I mean, this movie 
to me is for a character that we don't care about. No, but we're (laughs) just watching it because it's kind of fascinating. Oh yeah, and like I think that. Hamilton just does a a really good job making this film look beautiful. You know, I think this has some of my favorite shots of any James Bond movie, even just shots of like watching Goldfinger golfing, you know, looking up at him at the sky as he's missing a putt. I I think they're just striking and really beautiful. I think that's the difference. Or like when they're like driving in the forest and it's all black and like the yellow headlights are kind of like cutting through the darkness and like the bodyguards are wearing yellow, yellow sashes. Just... It's a strikingly beautiful film. And I feel like this movie really sets that bar of these movies are going to be gorgeous. Absolutely. I do think that what this movie does is it brings you into places in society that you haven't gotten a chance to see. And like I said earlier, we've gotten to this point now where it's just a travelogue. Where can Bond go? And it feels like bringing him all the way over here just to bring him over there so we get two beautiful set pieces of like a winter place and a and a summer place here obviously everything is shot in london they they don't go to shoot anything in the states this movie is i think next to live and let die is the most in america that bond movies have been because live and let die takes place a lot like manhattan and in the south uh you know, License to Kill starts off in Florida. Like, there are these things, but they they are in Fort Knox or Miami. Yeah. Uh, only Felix Leiter is the only actor that actually shot in the States. Everything was on these green screen projections. And it looks weird because, you know, why wouldn't they go there? <laughs> but uh, But I think what this movie does before and what people have taken out of it is, let's bring you to an exclusive golf club. Let's bring you inside Fort Knox. Like, what does Fort Knox look like? And that final end piece of being inside Fort Knox is so, I just love the set design here. And you know, yeah. even the opening set design. And they knew it design, was ridiculous. Yeah. Like they knew like you couldn't stack gold bars like that, that they would just collapse, that it's impossible. But I agree with you. Like I like settling into a Fort Knox stretch. I like it being like, this is the movie that has Fort Knox in it, you know, because yeah, tactically they, they did that. Tactically, the reason why they chose Goldfinger for the third book, they're going to choose a different one, but they went with this one because they knew it was time for Bond to really break out in America. And they thought if they set this movie in America, more Americans would see it. Oh, okay. And what worked out really well for them is that, uh, you know, to even get these Fort Knox like aerial shots that they did, it worked out because JFK was a huge fan of the of the Bond franchise. Like actually the last movie that JFK saw before he died, he's the night before he got shot, he saw From Russia with Love. Oh, and wow. his affection for the Bond franchise was part of like why the government gave their blessing to let them fly over Fort Knox at all. Even though part of the story is like the military said, you can fly over Fort Knox, you have to be 3,000 feet in the air. And they were like, sure, we'll be 3,000 feet in the air. And then they were just like 500 feet in the air and they're like, stop us later. We're wow. getting the footage. They just took it. Um, but fine, <laughs> you know, fine. But yeah, it's like, it's you're right. It's the idea of like getting to go someplace that feels special and like sacred, you know, like, yeah. wow, you went there. Well, it, even in the opening scene, like we go, we're going to a club, you know, we're, we're watching this woman belly dance and we're, we're feeling like we're in these exotic locales. And I guess what I'm pointing at is they didn't go anywhere but Pinewood, right? Where they shoot James Bond. Like they, they shot this in the UK, but yet it felt like you traveled the entire world. And I think where Bond is often really great 
is bringing you into an experience, like letting you see something that you've never seen before and figuring out how to shoot it in a way or how to create an action scene in a way that, you know, feels exciting. And, and you could see that in the Roger Moore films, like when skiing is reaching its kind of peak, you know, James Bond does a lot of skiing. You know, Roger Moore does a lot of skiing in those movies. Um, I'm sure that the next James Bond will play pickleball. But there, <laughs> but there, but there is this idea where petition to make Paul Shear the next James Bond. So let James me Bond will be get good at in there. November seventeenth, CBS, two hours. The Stephen Colbert Pickleball Invitational. No big deal. Uh, Whoa, you're gonna do that? Yes. Oh, oh yeah. Oh my gosh. Already. You taped. better make us proud. Uh, it's oh. already taped. You'll see it. Uh, but the um, I do think again these movies work the best when the plan is simple the villain isn't incredibly over the top it the idea that like james bond became about like world domination in many respects becomes this thing that's very hard to top how do you top world domination you know and world domination seems so stupid like on some level you know it's like it's you know when you watch a pink panther film like one of the plots in that is like, I'm going to make the UN disappear. And I was watching that. And I'm like, oh, wait, is that Pink Panther? Or is that James Bond? Like, I, I, I mix them because at a certain point, like, it gets to be so, like, they're trying to top themselves. So I, I really love the paring down, the, the smaller ideas, the, the villains that have lofty goals, but not, like... Not world Keep, domination. Not I agree. World, world I, domination I'm is so such a hard sick thing. Of world yeah. domination. Like, don't poison the world's gold supply. Very targeted. I yes. like that. I'm all on board with don't poison the world's gold supply. But I'm going to make the world bow to my knees. Ugh, I don't care. I really don't care. Yeah, it just feels like very Darth Vader versus a villain. Like, I think what is interesting about spy work or what we've seen of spy work in TV and film is that, you know, this is one of many assignments. It's like, you know, like if there are that many people trying to do world domination, I mean, it, it just seems like, you know, like it, I, I guess, I don't know. I just like it this. And, you know, I think as a kid, it's an easy thing. It's like, well, heighten, heighten, heighten. And that is, you know, to me, the problem with James Bond, it, it's the name Pussy Galore is a bold name, a name that I'm so surprised got out in that time, you know, and they, and they tried many ways to stop it. Like, I, I think... In American press, she's only referred to as Goldfinger's pilot, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, or Miss Galore. Yeah. But it's like my but favorite it's like, quote from Guy Hamilton about why he was going to stick to his guns on that name was he said, quote, if you were a 10 year old boy and knew what the name meant, you weren't a 10 year old boy. You were a dirty little bitch. Uh, <laughs> but it's so true. I watched this movie. I didn't get what Pussy Galore meant in any way. You know what? And I, and I, and I well, love congrats on it being a dirty little bitch when you were a child. No, I didn't know. <laughs> I know. I'm congratulating oh, I'm you. A for dirty, being, oh, I, I'm congratulating you for being an innocent, sweet thing. Oh, okay. No. Oh, I thought when you were you were a dirty little bitch, if you did know. Yeah, you are. Oh, yeah, yeah. 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 Now I am. Yes. Now you are <laughs> a dirty little bitch. We did it, Amy. We said it four times in a row, which is our goal. <laughs> uh the uh <laughs> but I am I'm there, I'm front row. Center. I've been to James Bond conventions. I watched the opening of GoldenEye at Radio City Music Hall with Pierce Brosnan introducing it in the upper balcony. It was so much fun. 
Uh, I met Q. Um, I, I'm, I am, I am a super fan. But when you look back on the series, I think that what people are striving for is a connection to this film. And and one of the things I really like about this movie, it's like an hour and 45 minutes. And James Bond now has become this like two hour plus affair. It's like, oh no, no, James Bond movies are big. And I remember as a kid, I felt like, oh, they're big. But I don't think they have to be, honestly. I don't think they need to carry this idea of like, it's big in every way, especially runtime. Because the truth is, why people feel weighed down by the franchise or why people may be like, oh, I don't like James Bond is because it does feel like we're checking the boxes of set pieces instead of telling like a story. Like, you know, sometimes James Bond is really just going to a different country to be like, you have to pick up your FedEx package in Sweden. Got it. Got it. Now I'm back over here. Now I'm in Norway. You know, it's like, like, why did you travel? What did you need to do? Like, you know, yeah. like there, there are these moments. I feel like they've been having a hard time, especially just even over the course of Daniel Craig's tenure as Bond, because the world has changed so much since he became Bond to now he leaves Bond, where it feels like they're afraid of the playfulness of Bond in the first place. Like when you look at the last Bond movie, you know, No Time to Die, like he meets a Bond girl, Ana de Armos. They actually don't have sex. It doesn't come up. They just run around together and shoot yeah. guns. And that's about it. And mostly what he does is he like wonders if he's a dad and he makes breakfast for a kid and he doesn't do anything. He like, he's all guilt and trauma and worried about falling in love. And there's almost no Connery in the ending of the Craig series. There's There I, really isn't yeah. that lightness. And I find no. that to be a... Well, uh, well, I, I find it to be the the final extension of where they were going with. I think it started in a great place, but I don't care about where it ended. I disagree with you there, but I want to get into that right this second. Well, you know that Ian Fleming didn't want Sean Connery. Like Ian Fleming's dream casting for Bond would have been David Niven. Do you know David Niven? Like he was in. Oh, of uh, course. Pink yeah. Panther. Yeah. Pink. Pa- exactly. Pink Panther around the world in 80 days. Like that was his kind of dream. Like Niven was. Niven had everything that like Fleming had. You know, he was like a an ex-British soldier. He lived kind of a Bond life. Like he was a British soldier who skipped out of duty because he wanted to go on a date. He was like in a machine gun lesson on his like British camp. And he was like, can this stop? I have a date to go on. And they got so mad at him that he got in trouble and he had to like leave the army and he had to like go to America. And then he became an actor. And then he like actually went back to England and re-enlisted during World War II. So then he got his like wartime credentials. Like he missed out on like five years of his Hollywood career because he went back to be a soldier. Um, But he is sort of also famous to me for being in, I would say the most legendary Oscar moment up until this year. Uh, Do you remember this one where David Niven is about to present the best picture Oscar in 1974? And he is interrupted by a streaker. The award for the best picture is never lightly given. And now to divulge the contents of this year's most important envelope is a very important contributor to world entertainment and someone quite likely that was almost bound to happen. (laughs) But isn't it fascinating that (laughs) fascinating to think that, that probably the only laugh that man will ever get in his life is by stripping off and showing his shortcomings. Small note on that streaker, by the way. Um, he was uh, 
actually an Eng- English as a second language teacher here in Los Angeles. His name was like Robert Opal. He like runs out, you know, he flashes a peace sign. And there was this whole conspiracy theory that he was there as a planned stunt that like maybe the presenters, like they knew he was going to do this in order to like, you know, um, get the Oscars ratings higher or something like that. David Niven, they're like, his quote, his quip was too perfect. But I don't think that's true because like the actual man wound up getting like fired from his teaching job. And then he wound up running for president in 1976 under the slogan, not just another crooked dick. And then, yeah, yeah, he he was like actually a really good friend of like John Waters, who we should totally do uh, on this show sometime and like Divine. And then tragically, like he went to San Francisco, opened up an art gallery, uh, used it to promote the work of, you know, queer artists like Maplethorpe, Tom of Finland. And then somebody tried to rob his art gallery and he got murdered only a few years after this streaking incident. Oh, my God. Well, by the way, I just want to say, too, just because we were saying that, like, Ian Fleming wanted David Niven. He did get to see it, or maybe he didn't. I don't know if uh, when his death timed out, but David Niven did get to play James Bond in Casino Royale. That Not- is true. The one that we all know, but the comedy version, the one that has like Woody Allen and uh, it's like uh, there's always these rights issues. Like it's the reason why James Bond, you'll see like there's a Sean Connery uh, movie called Never Say Never Again, which is not a broccoli 007 movie, but they could take the book, but they couldn't take the right. You know, it's like these weird rights issues that kind of come up that allow people to take uh, an Ian Fleming novel but it doesn't, it's not in the James Bond uh, canon, like, you know, uh, everything under the MGM banner, which is now the Amazon banner. Uh, um, no, but, but do it, you yeah. know who actually like turned Ian Fleming around on this, on, on Sean Connery and got him to be on board? Who? It's kind of an interesting story. So at one time in Ian Fleming's life, when he was married, he was deeply in love with a woman who was not his wife. Um, she lived in Jamaica. Her name was Blanche Blackwell. Uh, and she was this just amazing kind of man-eating, lovely, charming, athletic woman that like every guy who ever met her was totally in love with. Like she actually would say, she's her son remembered that she would say, I love men. They make such good pets. Uh, but she and Ian Fleming were like in love for a long time. Um, she's probably like the person that he was maybe most in love with in his entire life. And she was the one who was like, cast Sean Connery. Sean Connery is the guy. Sean Connery is sexy. Women are going to love Sean Connery. This is your bond. You have to pay attention. And Blanche Blackwell turns out to be the person that he modeled Pussy Galore after. That she was just like the strong, really competent, intimidating, wonderful, sexy, strong woman that he adored. And so he put all of her personality into that character. So I, I love I this. Think that's and really you romantic. Know, I, I really love that. But now I guess my question to you is, you know, we've been talking about this movie, Goldfinger, for a lot. And we could probably even spend more time on it. We didn't even talk about the song. I mean, one of the best things about Bond, obviously Shirley Basie here, uh, this song. Arguably the best Bond song. I would say Live and Let Die might fight it a little bit. 
because I think that these two together are probably really strong. And then I would even put like Skyfall after that. Those are kind of my Skyfall's really good, really good. Um, if you ever heard Skyfall by Cats, <laughs> no, but I'm... I play that. I play that on the way to my school uh, drop-off every day for my kids. Have you heard the Goldfinger song sung by one of the men who wrote it, Anthony Newley? Like, he, this is no. his version of what the song would sound like before they had Shirley Bassey sing it. And he, actually, they were trying to be like, you should just sing this song. You're, you're great at this. They loved the way that he sung it, but he was like, this song's too creepy. I don't, I think it's the creepiest song ever. I can't do it. The man, the man with the Midas touch, a spider's touch, such a cold finger. By the way, the producer of Goldfinger, Harry Saltzman, thought that it was the worst song he ever heard. Oh, and also, you know how it ends on that like gigantic note uh, that Bassie just sort of lands and it holds yeah. forever? That note was so hard for her to hit because it lasted for so long that in the recording room, she had to take off her bra in order to get the cold to full lung capacity. By the way, speaking of taking your bra off, let me read to you one of the only real pans of this movie from the New York Times, from Bosley Crowther. And his point of view on this, I found really interesting. He says, old 007 is slipping or rather his script writers are. They're involving him more and more with gadgets and less and less with girls. Agent 007 of the British Secret Service virtually spurns the less temptations of voluptuous females in favor of high-powered cars and tricky machines. In his previous cinematic conniptions, Dr. No and From Russia With Love, uh, those fantastic fabrications you may remember, he was consistently assailed by an unending flow of luxurious, exotic, and insatiable girls. And being the sort of omnipotent and adaptable fellow he is, he did what he could to oblige them in the course of pursuing his sleuthing chores. But in this most gaudy of outings, the most elaborate and fantastic to date, he manages to bestow his male attentions on only a couple of passing supplicants. One is a pliant little number who expires early, sealed in a skin of gold paint. The other is a brawny pilot who remarkably resembles gorgeous George. Neither is up to the standard of femininity usually maintained for Mr. Bond. Why this neglect of his love life is difficult to imagine, except that Mr. Bond's offhanded conquests were always open to a certain amount of doubt, a certain amount of skepticism as to how much of a Lothario he actually is. Indeed, they have often intimated a bland contempt for, or at least a slippery spoof of the whole notion of masculine prowess. One might question whether Bond really likes girls. So maybe his careful scriptwriters have played down that overly amorous side, delicately displacing dolls with automation and beautiful bodies with electric brains. Anyway, what they give us in Goldfinger is an excess of science fiction fun, a mess of mechanical melodrama, and a minimum of bedroom farce. Wow, so interesting, essence, yeah. All the way back in the 60s, he's like, there's not enough women. I'm like, I'm Matt, what would he think of Bond today? I I love that it will always be a constant debate. It's always going to be right there. You know, <laughs> Amy, I, I really am happy that we picked this one 
to talk about first uh, to celebrate like the anniversary of James Bond because I do feel like I think sometimes the most popular one you start to feel like a resentment towards like yeah yeah everyone likes Goldfinger 99% of Rotten Tomatoes but I like this one and sometimes the most popular one is the most popular one because it does do everything really right. I have an appreciation for this movie that I haven't had in a long time. And I was one of the proponents fighting for From Russia With Love. And I think that that movie is great. But I think that this is the quintessential James Bond film. And in a way, if we are talking about sending these films to space, which we often do, uh, this might be the surefire one. Because I think even 60 years later, you see the architecture of this in all the other films. And yes, there might be some that might be better films, but there's something about this one that really captures everything and sets the standard. I always talk about that idea of like, well, did it do it first or the best? And I think this is one of those rare examples where it's like, it did it first. And because it did it first back then, and it was so confident and self-assured, it might be the best. I'm open to that, but I do want to explore this genre just a bit because I know I'm being a little hard on the Daniel Craigs. I think maybe we should do a Daniel Craig, but I kind of want to do a palate cleanser. Can I say something weird? Sure. Now that I'm really in this mental track of can we make these movies light again? Can we make them fun again? I want to go all the way to the other end before we go to the world of Glower, and I want to do the world of hardcore fun. I think we should do Austin Powers. As long as it's not gold member. <laughs> and I'll do it. First one? First one. I'll do the first one. I'll do the first one with you. I like that one. I like that idea. Uh, another series, a long-running series. Uh, and as long as we're not getting fat bastard and stuff. All right, let, let's do the first Austin Powers. Take a listen to a uh, clip. It's called Blackmail. As you know, the royal family of Britain are the wealthiest landowners in the world. Either the royal family pays us an exorbitant amount of money, or we make it seem that Prince Charles has had an affair outside of marriage and therefore would have to divorce. <clears throat> Prince Charles did have an affair. He admitted it, and they are now divorced. Right, okay, people, you have to tell me these things, all right? I've been frozen for 30 years, okay? Throw me a frickin' bone here. I'm the boss. Need the info. You can get Austin Powers wherever you get your streaming films. Also check out your local public library that has amazing free services to get these films on your iPad, your iPhone, or whatever device you use to stream your films. Amy, I'm excited to continue to talk spies with you um, and even get into some Craig talk too. This is a good toe in the water of 007. I was excited to do it. Me too, buddy. All right. Away we go. Let's have an adventure. Love it. If you like listening to Unspooled, well, you have a lot of people to thank. As a matter of fact, you can thank our producers, Josh Richmond and Devin Bryant, our executive producers, Cody Fisher and Colin Anderson, our MVP behind the scenes, Molly Reynolds. Our theme song is by Michael Cassidy. Kim Troxell does all of our fan art. You can follow us on Apple Podcasts and make sure you rate and review us on Apple and Amazon or wherever you rate and review podcasts. Plus, you can follow us for the latest up to the minute discourse on Twitter and Instagram, but also on the Paul Shear Discord, where we host a very exclusive Unspooled chat. It's nice. It's fun. Social media. If you want an Unspooled t-shirt, go to tpublic.com slash unspooled. You can also check out Podswag for exclusive merch. Get back episodes of the show and bonuses like screen test if you subscribe to Stitcher Premium and check out the official 
API, that's the Amy and Paul Institute list, at unspooledpod.com. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.